We must constantly look at things in a different way. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast was created by two physical therapists out of the desire to learn more about the different educational roles in physical therapy and healthcare and how healthcare education works by talking with educational leaders and people with different perspectives within physical therapy and across interdisciplinary lines on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey and thanks for listening. Yeah, Jerry, no, that's really interesting to hear kind of that unique perspective there. Because personally, I didn't know that to that level of the roles that pharmacists can do. And, you know, I've got to ask, of course, you know, as in our profession, you know, costs with going into school and going through it is always a factor. So with that being said, I'm kind of curious, you know, how much on average does it cost to become a pharmacist? And what is the average salary for an entry level pharmacist kind of in the U.S.? Sure. Definitely something I considered uh, <laughs> and definitely something all students have to consider uh, is that, you know, cost benefit analysis, if you will. So I definitely sharpened my pencil and put my my uh, business degree hat on when I was looking at all those factors to, before I went into this. So it does it, it really does range pretty drastically as far as tuition costs. So, for instance, where I am at Campbell University in North Carolina, it's a rural private college. Uh, it's about thirty seven thousand dollars a year right now for tuition. So, you know, roughly a little over $140,000, $150,000. It's a lot of money <laughs> and it's a lot of student loans. Fortunately, they offer a lot of scholarship opportunities, but it's still a pretty hefty burden. Now, I have seen some other numbers. I'd say UNC is a state school here. Uh, a lot of people know about it. Obviously, UNC Chapel Hill is one of the other pharmacy programs in the state. And they, they're slightly less. They're about ten dollars to $15,000 a year less, I believe. But I've seen numbers that range from... $17,000 a year all the way up to, I think California has a school that's like $70,000 a year, if I'm not mistaken. So there's a quite a bit of variability there with regard to tuition, but either way you slice it, it's expensive. Now there are all sorts of student loans you can take out for that. And it kind of leads into the, your next question. It's a lot of money to go to school for it, but the salary is, is pretty good, I would say, for, you know, so the salary is, is pretty good with regards to starting out. I mean, I think some of the numbers I've seen as recent, the starting salaries for someone with no experience is, depending again on the practice site and where you practice, what state you're in, things like that, it ranges from about 85000 to about $120,000 starting out. And I think the average is somewhere around 108000 from what I've seen. Now, the higher starting salaries that I've seen and heard about are coming from the retail setting. So the bigger chain stores, things like that, are paying students a little bit more to kind of entice them in. Now, it's not as competitive as it was, you know, 10 or 15 years ago where students were having their pick of job, getting signing bonuses, all sorts of other perks like that. But that's still a pretty, pretty heft, a pretty nice starting salary. And then, you know, depending if you start out in a hospital system, it might be a little bit less to start, but your ceiling might be a little bit higher as far as where you where you can go as far as topping out your salary. Industry, I don't know the numbers on industry, but I know the salaries are usually pretty good and, and a lot higher in industry jobs. All right, Jerry. So we've sort of laid the groundwork for how to get into pharmacy school um, and what it looks like once you're in the program. So now let's talk about the next step, the real world, right? You're about to enter a field that is being hotly debated as one of the major players and gateways to this current opioid epidemic. Obviously, I'm not blaming pharmacists or any one profession for that matter, but what are your thoughts on the current status of opioids in America and the trajectory we're heading in on dealing with it? 
I think it's a serious problem, and I, I'm glad to see that it's getting approached with the seriousness that it deserves. Kind of, I liken it to the, the toothpaste being out of the tube, and now we're trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube. As I'm sure both of you know, you know, a number of years ago, pain was identified as that you know fifth sense, and we need to treat pain, and 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 it's hard to quantify that for each individual patient. So there there definitely was a need for some of these pain medications, and and unfortunately, and I believe initially they were they were marketed in a manner that was was not consistent with with how dangerous some of them can actually be and it's good to see that you know medications like opana that are being widely abused have kind of been taken off the market now as far as the trajectory we're on you know it's going to take a lot of work to kind of reverse course here but it is good to see that at the state level and the federal level they're starting to appropriate funds towards addressing this issue. They're starting to set legislation as far as prescribing practices, dispensing practices, things like that. So that is encouraging. Now, it's just, it's unfortunate that it took this long to get there. And, you know, it's funny, being a pharmacy student, I'm not the biggest proponent of our first course of therapy being medication. And I know we kind of talked a little bit earlier about the public health angle on that and the, the health and promotion angle on that and, and switching the model of practice we have for healthcare in this in this country. And I think that's definitely something we, we need to continue to work on. So, you know, in our state specifically, they passed a, a law recently this year to limit the amount of prescription drugs that can be initially administered to a patient. Practitioners can dis- dispense five days of a controlled substance on the initial prescription. And if it's post-surgical, I think they can give up to seven days of, of a controlled substance. Um, as far, so that's your, your C2, Vicodins, Percocets of the world. And they have to have a subsequent follow-up physical exam before proceeding with any kind of refills or course of action. So that's good to see. You know, pharmacists are obviously on the front lines, but with just by the nature of dispensing the medication to the end user, the patient. And I, you know, I've seen over the years a number of patients that were definitely in need of a stronger pain medication. They were able to use those medications acutely and get off the therapy. And I've seen others that haven't and saw it progress and spiral out of control into addiction and subsequent bad outcomes for them. So they also, as a part of the law that was passed here, have really stepped up the mandates on using our controlled substance registry, which is allows all practitioners to go in and see a patient's controlled substance prescribing history. So that's something I think that's a tool that we can use. And I think just some more logic and compassion as a pharmacist in dealing with our patients and talking honestly with them about the the full array of outcomes that are possible when they start taking some of these medications. Because by by definition, a medication is a drug, it's a toxin. So there's always the chance of, of, you know, a poor outcome or an adverse reaction or, or something worse that can come with any medication, especially these medications. So I, I'm glad to see that we're moving towards treating it with the seriousness that it, it deserves. Uh, I just know we have a long way to go with it. And I know that as a pharmacist, there's a lot we can do. Another side note is North Carolina enacted a law that allowed a standing order for naloxone, which is the reversal agent for opioids. So that's something that allows in an overdose situation to quickly reverse the effects of the medication in a temporary fashion so that they can you know, seek further medical um, attention. And something that we now carry in the pharmacies and we can dispense at our own discretion without having to have an order for it to anybody that we feel is at risk for a potential opioid overdose. Now, that's not just an abuser. 
it, it could be anybody. It could be your grandmother that gets a prescription for a pain medication after hip surgery, and either she's administering her own drugs and and potentially could make a mistake, or a care a caregiver of hers could potentially administer the, the medication in an improper fashion. And to have that readily accessible is is one step. It's not the panacea for it or you know a, a cure all, but it's it's one step that can buy us some time in those those emergency situations. And then there's other harm reduction organizations that pharmacists can get involved with. I know something we've done at our school through one of our professional organizations and something I was directly involved with was bringing in one of the harm reduction agencies that goes around and passes out naloxone kits to at-risk communities. So it could be IV drug use communities. It could be a number of different communities that are potential overdose risk of uh, opioid overdose, excuse me. And we had an education and a training event on how to administer it. And then we also made like, you know, about 2000 kits for them to go and, uh, and take and pass out. We kind of helped them package them up. They brought all the supplies. And it was just an interesting experience because a lot of times you hear stories of, you know, a practitioner administering naloxone for the first time in an emergency situation and they hadn't seen it before. So we're starting to make some inroads there with training. And I know that's going on too at the state level for practicing pharmacists where they can do CEs and get certification and get training um, on the lock zone and opioid reversal and things like that. So there are definitely a number of ways for us to get involved. And it's something we definitely have to get involved with. We can't just turn a blind eye to it. No, absolutely, Jerry. And I think that was amazing to hear all those different avenues and such. And that's a lot I didn't aware of. I was not aware of that drug at all. And I think that's really good to hear. And you know, realizing this next question might not trying to stir anything here. I'm not trying to open up Pandora's box, but you know, what you said before in terms of, you know, trying to really get on those guidelines of optimal um, dosage and stuff like that with certain medications, especially these pain medications, what issues are you finding in terms of consistency with that with other providers such as doctors and such? And I know you said educating patients as well about proper medications. And I'm kind of curious, is this a big issue with it, within being a pharmacist with that and kind of educating, you know, patients on orders and the medications and how it may be different from what another provider told them? I would say yes. It's very important. Now, what, what I will say is, unfortunately, and I, I have very limited experience, but even that limited experience, you see the way each individual pharmacist conducts their practice, if you will. Some are really great with those patient interactions and those education and counseling moments, and some aren't so great at it. So I think it's, as a profession, something that we need to just do a better job with and something that, you know, we we have to kind of take charge of and really question, and not question in a bad way, but question every order that comes in for a patient and make sure that it is in their best interest to take that medication at that dose for that course of therapy for however long that may be and and consider the the source of the prescription and is it somebody that we've had you know interactions with in the past if there's ever a question have we you know done all that we can to make sure that the, it's a legitimate there's a legitimate prescription for it they really meant to write it for that specific course of therapy and something that you know it's 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 a very delicate topic on how you approach it and i think a lot of practitioners shy away from it because they don't want to offend the prescriber and, the, and the, the physician, but it can be done in a way that you're not calling it to question their expertise, but it's more in that patient safety, patient-centered approach where we're just saying, hey, you know, we have access to all of their prescription history that they've gotten from every one of their providers, their emergency situations, their hospital admissions, all their specialists, 
And, you know, we have all this information as far as their, their patient chart and fill history. And, you know, the way this medication fits in at this very time may not be the best way to use it for this patient right now. So I think we just need to work on those lines of communications and not be scared to just have an honest discussion with the physician and the patient and bring the patient in to that, you know, therapy decision and just say, hey, look, you know, this is where we're at. And these are all the things we need to consider just being completely transparent and make the best decision moving forward. Yeah, Jerry, no, I think that's great. And I can say to a degree, there's a similar um, issue with that in the physical therapy realm as well. You know, but I'd like to shift gears a little bit. And before we were kind of talking about the health promotion, prevention and wellness aspect. And, you know, what are your thoughts on trying to move America away from disease and treatment through prescription meds and towards a more healthier lifestyle to prevent many of these chronic diseases from ever happening. And do you think this is a realistic paradigm shift and pharmacists can help with this shift in any way? I think we have to be optimistic and realistic that it can happen. I honestly think, you know, with as much attention as the healthcare industry has received over the last few years, we all understand that there's a huge pressure and strain on our model of healthcare in this country and, and, and a legitimate question about sustainability and, and whether or not we can keep moving forward, you know, with our current model. Something I will say in all of our courses and in all of our therapeutic decision models, we always factor in the lifestyle modifications that a patient can make to help manage their disease state or prevent further progression of it to more serious um, complications. So yeah, I mean, I'm definitely a huge proponent of as a nation, really empowering patients to take charge of their health and and be responsible for it. Now, I understand there's there's always going to be disease states and and afflictions that occur for patients that are completely out of their control. They can do everything right, have the best diet regimen, exercise regimen, and they're still going to be afflicted with some form of disease, whether it be due to genetics or environment or whatever the case may be. It's completely out of their control. So, for those patients, there's you know there's always going to be a need for maybe some kind of pharmaceutical intervention on top of the lifestyle factors. But but yeah, I mean, I think, so something I learned in the public health program was that education is always a fundamental part of the process, but it's not the end-all, be-all. And I think, unfortunately, as this tide has started to turn over the years, so many people have just turned to, well, we can just educate them about it. So we educate them about it. We can tell them about, you know, these are all the grave outcomes that occur if you continue to not take care of your, your health and your well-being and your body um, and your spirit and all that. And unfortunately, that doesn't do it all the time. You, you know, not every lay person understands the message or it's not delivered to them in a manner for them to be able to understand it. So I think as a whole, we need to take a, a bigger picture approach and a more holistic approach to, to a patient's health, really empower them to make the best decisions for their for their physical well-being and their health, and involve them in the decision-making process, not just treat them as a number or a chart, and really kind of treat them as a person, as a whole person. And that includes, you know, the physical, the spiritual, and the, the medicinal side of things, um, and really try to find ways for them small things for them to do that can help improve their outcome. It's not always a matter of having to work out five days a week and adhere to this strict insane diet or fad diet or whatever comes around, but really, really giving them the tools 
to make the best decisions for themselves and, and implement incremental process for them to achieve their health goals. So I think that's something that I will will always carry with me in my practice and something that I will always think about first is like, one, involve the patient in, in the decisions and all the entire process and just be transparent with them and then give them the tools to make the best decisions for their health and not always immediately turn to, you know, here's a pill, you can do whatever you want and this pill is going to save you at the end of the day because you can't outrun that train. It's, it's not something that's that's possible. Yeah, that's very well put, Jerry. And, you know, we talked a little bit about this in the intro and, and here in the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, we're all about breaking down the silos. But uh, how can pharmacists and other healthcare professionals interact with each other in order to reach the best possible health outcomes for our patients like you were talking about? So I think that's going to come back to the individual. I mean, we are going to have to force that to happen, if you will. And I don't, I don't mean that like we're physically kicking in the door, but we're really going to have to make it a part of our makeup as a practitioner to seek out our peers and our, our other medical professionals in our community and establish those relationships. Now, whether that be through joining a professional organization you know, irrespective for your profession or, you know, finding ways to network either through, I don't know if the chamber is an avenue for that kind of stuff, the chamber of commerce in your local community, or literally going door to door and, and, and introducing yourself to the other practitioners and saying, hey, you know, in, in my case as a pharmacist, if you have any ever any questions about medications or there's ever anything I can do for any of your patients, you know, please don't hesitate to ask. I know, you know, you always hear about the frazzled pharmacist that's having to fill 500 prescriptions a day and you know they're so laser beam focused on what they're doing that they don't have time for anything else and we just have to really kind of put our foot down as as professionals and and adhere to the oath that we take that we are going to do everything in the best interest of our patient and if that means taking time to educate them, counsel them, get in touch with their prescribers and have that discussion and that discourse you know that two-way exchange of information and ideas it's really incumbent on each of us to make that happen. It's it's difficult because we all get caught up, you know, and I love the word silo that you use. And I've heard that in, with increasing frequency as I go through my education here. And I think it's, it, it's an apt description of what's gone on in the past. And it is something that we need to change. And it's just going to require each of us to learn a little bit about our role on the team, what the other medical professionals do on the team, and the pers- perspective that they come at the decision-making process with and kind of come to that that level of understanding of each other so that we can provide the best service and the best outcome for our patient. Yeah, Jerry, no, I think that's a fantastic take, man, and I couldn't agree more. And I think it's very similar in that in the physical therapy realm as well as you know, where a lot of clinics are struggling, just to, the clinicians are struggling just to get through the day because they have seen so many more patients and then getting their notes done and getting all the everything taken care of that sometimes it's hard to make that time for some of those outside things that we really need. And I think that was a great call to action in there. And, you know, and Jerry, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your insight that what you've talked about today, and I've learned definitely a ton of new stuff about the field of pharmacy that I never actually knew at all. And I'm so glad to have heard that and I'm glad our listeners will as well. But we like to transition and finish each episode with this final question to everyone, because we're always so curious to hear what people think. And the question is, if you could change one aspect of higher education, uh, pharmacy school or el- other healthcare-related fields, uh, 
what would you change and how would you change it? That's a deep question. (laughs) I honestly, you know, I appreciate the fact that I am in a professional program that we are held to a certain standard. And I think that's a really good thing because at the end of the day, you know, we could potentially be making decisions that carry a patient's life in our hands and, and, and the decisions that we make could really impact someone's life. So in honesty, the most obvious thing that comes to mind to me is the expense of it. Education has become a huge industry. I mean, there's, especially since the, you know, the financial crisis that our country went through in 2008 and the subsequent years, so many people drove back or driven back to school to kind of hit the drawing board. I kind of fall into that category, although I don't connect the two because I was already on that course. It just kind of happened during that time frame. But the the number of schools for pharmacy specifically has exploded. So I think the numbers are like in nineteen in the late nineteen eighties there was about seventy schools. Campbell was the first of the new ish pharmacy schools that was was established there there hadn't been a pharmacy school established in decades and then Campbell started in 86 and now there's there's there were 70 ish schools at that time and now there's 100 just about 140 in a 30 year period so we've almost doubled the number of schools so as much as I'm a benefit of being in pharmacy school today I don't want to see it get watered down and I don't want to see students get held over the barrel or be precluded from pursuing their dream due to an expense just because of the fact that we need to, you know, build, expand, you know, fund all the other new programs when ultimately, you know, it could probably be done a little bit more judiciously and not have to increase tuition every single year. So I think that's the most obvious thing that jumps out to me. So yeah, I had to change that. I really, I don't have an answer for that because People are going to keep showing up. People are going to keep paying it. If that's what's set, uh, if that's where the bar is set, then that's what you have to meet. So it's really unfortunate. All I can say is seek out as much scholarship opportunity, grant opportunity, loan opportunity you can if it's something you're truly passionate about because you don't want to bite off too much, not be happy with it, wash out of school and be ended up with you know, uh, close to six figures worth of debt. Uh, uh, of student loans and then have to kind of hit the drawing board again. Yeah, that is an absolutely great take on it, Jerry. You know, I just want to thank you so much for your time tonight and for coming on to enlighten us. Uh, Just like Brandon said, I learned so much and you really helped educate us about uh, what it's like going through pharmacy school. And I'm sure our audience will benefit from this. You know, and it was really great to reconnect with you, man. But could you tell us, uh, you know, where people can find you online or on social media if they have any follow-up questions or just want to reach out? Uh, Yeah, sure. So I'm a little bit of a dinosaur, but I am on Facebook. It is my name, Jerry, J-E-R-R-Y. Last name is Dykeman, D-Y-C-K-M-A-N. You can email me directly, give you my my email address at Campbell. Bear with me. They don't give us easy ones. So I'll go slow and try to speak clearly. You can email me at G-W-D-Y-C-K-M-A-N. 0104, take a breath, at Campbell, oh, sorry, I, I apologize, at email.campbell, C-A-M-P-B-E-L-L dot E-D-U. 
Yeah, and we'll put all that stuff up in the show notes too so people can link directly to it if they need. Um, but like I said, thanks for coming on to man. We really appreciated it. I enjoyed it immensely. It was great to reconnect. Uh, it is great to talk to other professionals um, in the field. Like I said, I've gotten a couple IPE experiences and my mind gets blown every time because it just sheds a little bit more light on what somebody else is doing out there, the great things that are going on. If there's anything I can ever do for you in the future, please let me know. And I really appreciate you guys having me on. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Jerry. It's been great. And you know, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for attending class today. And we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.